I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Dean, it feels like it's been a minute. You've been gone. We've been gone. We've all been gone for a little bit, but now <laughs> we're back. And that feels good. It feels good to be back in the saddle and uh, not playing an old episode again. That's right. It is good to be back. Um, it was good to go away. I went to Cuba for a week and it was all very complicated to get there and be there and great, a great trip, but a lot of stuff. Matt had to deal with Scotland's bad internet for the last uh, few weeks, so I feel like there are a lot of moving parts, but they're finally settling down. Perfect as we go into the Advent season and we're, we're ready. We're going to talk about Cuba, but not this time around. I think uh, we need to deal with some other current events yeah your your cuba memories have to uh cool off a little bit you have to come down from the <laughs> the mission trip high of going to cuba um a little bit before you can have a that's a, right a 2020 um view of what happened while you were there um yeah you know i've never i've never done um mushrooms or psychedelics or whatever because i am afraid of drugs but uh people i know who have done it say that you have to like really integrate your uh your wild trip and i feel like that's why i have to do with cuba <laughs> i really need to like integrate it back into my daily life figure out what it's like to live on this plane in canada and uh, then i'll be ready to talk about all right it. well until then um we can focus on another time of the year that it is no not advent that was that's something we did last year and maybe, well, we're doing, we're doing Advent. Advent's <laughs> still happening, but we're not focusing on it today in this episode. Uh, we're focusing on a whole different time of the year and that is COP28, <laughs> the climate, the climate change time of the year, the most depressing time of the year. Uh, you've got seasonal depression for sure, but have you had climate change depression yet? <laughs> maybe this time you can. <laughs> it is a it is strange actually that cop is kind of one of those weird like holidays in the secular liturgical calendar where people get together they talk about the environment they talk about the climate they do all the rituals that you're supposed to do and just like uh, many other holidays and religious traditions um, after that you still do Black Friday sales <laughs> and uh, forget the real meaning of the season and it is uh, it is that time of year I feel like if the folks over at cop 28 just burnt an effigy or two they'd get a little bit further along in the process <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think that's right um, well it is that time the the world's nations they're coming together they're talking about commitments and policies and climate change in cop 28. Uh, can't believe we've had uh, 28 of these, but um, here we are. We talked about COP26 and 27 in past episodes. 
Maybe we should have re-listened to them before this one, but we didn't. Uh, so tonight we're just talking about what's going on right now, the big number 28, and also what Pope Francis had to say to the governments of the world in his recent address. And we're going to talk a little bit, too, about some of the limitations of COP meetings. I think, I don't know, it's probably like if you're not a person in NGO world or like international politics or whatever, first of all, congratulations. Good for you. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good situation, <laughs> but uh, don't mess it up. if you are stuck, <laughs> don't mess it up. If you are stuck in those conversations, though, you're hearing about cop all the time uh, for better and for worse. Um, it's one of these spaces where, you know, big major players get together and they talk about doing stuff. They also talk about not doing stuff. And as you can guess, you know, capitalism gets in the way of all those things. And I do think it's important for people on the left to be paying attention to it because it kind of like gives you a good barometer of what the what the like international discourses around climate change and also like how much work still needs to be done to ever make these people do anything meaningful and important on an incredibly short timeline. So it might sound very boring. It might sound like some kind of policy wonk stuff. And it is both of those things, but it is also important, I think, for people on the left to like, I don't know, figure out what's going on there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things that, you know, it comes up once a year or whatever. Sometimes I skip a year if there's a horrible pandemic. I'm sure it won't be the last time they skip it. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it comes up every year and I feel like it kind of flies under the radar for a lot of people. Maybe you'll hear a blip or two about it on NPR or something. But um, I think we it, it, like Dean was saying, it's important to know what's happening there and exactly how <laughs> capitalism is getting in the way or how other weird ideologies are kind of getting in the way. Um, and this <laughs> you'll, you'll see some interesting examples of that in, in just a minute. Uh, but before we get to all of that, we should probably just lay some of the groundwork out for what cop even is and like what it's doing. Um, it is a little bit wonky, which I apologize for. I mean, it's not my fault. I'm just telling you about it. <laughs> Get mad at the United Nations if you really don't like it. <laughs> um, but we'll just go through some like uh, some of the ground, some of the foundational ideas behind cop. And then uh, we'll talk about what else is like happening there. So cop stands for the conference of parties and that makes it sound fun, but it's not the parties in question are not, <laughs> not a cool hang that you're having with your, your best pals. Instead, it's 197 countries of the United Nations that are signatories to the United Nations framework convention on climate change or UNFCCC. Um, whenever I see that acronym, I always say, Oomph. uh, but according to, <laughs> according, <laughs> you're always saying, <laughs> constantly that. saying it. Uh, I'll try not to say it for the sake of the podcast because I don't think it's a great auditory experience, but <laughs> I can't make any promises. <laughs> According to the UN, the whole point of the UNFCCC is to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic or human-induced interference with the climate system. Um, as you can probably tell, just just because it's been so hot this past year, they've been doing a very poor job. But um, <laughs> that's the that's the main intention. That's like what they're trying to get at. Right. It's a big meeting of countries and delegations from those countries, sometimes the actual leaders of those countries and sometimes just people that are sent. Um, and they're trying to sort of parse out who's responsible for what? How are they going to handle uh, a heating up planet? Um, all of that kind of stuff. Sometimes cop meetings result in like new New big agreements and treaties. Yeah, maybe you've heard of the Kyoto Protocols from previous years. Or you might also remember the Paris Agreement, which the United States is once again a part of. Thank you, 
President Joe Biden. No, just kidding. He's not the president. <laughs> Sean Fain's the real president. Let's hang on. Let's stop for one second here and have a quick diversion. Um, <laughs> someone in the Discord uh, did bring up a few days ago that Sean Fain is a sort of a, a left. There's a there's a left QAnon, QAnon conspiracy where Sean Fain is actually the president and Joe Biden has never been the president. And I wholeheartedly endorse this. Um Conspiracy theory. <laughs> Same. You gotta uh, really live into it, manifest it, and one day it will just be the case. We'll all wake up, and Sean Fain will be the one giving us the State of the Union. And by union, he does mean the UAW, which is now the controlling governing body of the United States. And I can't wait for it. <laughs> Everyone's like, "Oh, Donald Trump. He's the real president. He's been this whole time." It's like I don't think so. I'm a <laughs> UAW member somehow now. I got, I got this card in the mail and everything. I've got a jacket. What? <laughs> My benefits and wages. How could Donald Trump be the president if I'm going to? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. Sorry. Um, we'll we'll come back to President Sean Fain maybe later on. Um, anyways, the the point of COP here is to um, make agreements between countries uh, where people can generally agree upon particular frameworks to mitigate emissions and uh, hopefully not burn the entire planet and everyone on its death. Um, again, uh, so far not working, but. Maybe 28 will be the one where we, we figure it out. So the, uh, the the Paris Agreement, though, is is like the prevailing framework at the moment. Um, you might remember that uh, the fake president, Donald Trump, did make us leave it. And the other fake president, <laughs> Joe Biden, did get us back into it. And that's that's fine, I guess. Um, so this is the prevailing agreement between uh, parties at COP. And it has the kind of like a, a particular type of framework and a particular like uh, mission and um, goal that it's shooting for with regards to climate change. Um, it was adopted in 2015. So a few COPs ago in COPs past. Uh, but the goal of the Paris Agreement is to limit the increase of the global average temperature to below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So uh, that's that's the goal. We don't want to get too hot because or else we're all, we're all going to die. That's literally it. Um, you would think that a extremely serious and existential threat like that would be taken more seriously than like a bunch of countries failing to agree on anything um <laughs> or only agreeing on very little <laughs> but uh you'd be wrong it's it's not working out that way so something really notable about the paris agreement is that it is a binding international treaty that calls for a real substantial amount of multilateral collaboration between states which is an important detail for when we'll get to the, the the Pope later on. Um, he has a lot to say about multilateralism. Some, I mean, all of it's good. What he says <laughs> is good. <laughs> but, but the type of multilateralism that you're getting in the Paris Agreement is like extremely frustrating stuff. Um, some of the collaborations that the Paris Agreements require are things like um, developed countries providing financial assistance to less developed countries. Um, you guys can't see it at home, but I'm using air quotes every time I say <laughs> developed country. <laughs> um uh, it, this is like working out primarily through something called the loss and damages fund, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. Um, but they, uh, the Paris agreement also, uh, necessitates some collaborations like technology transfers, uh, around the, uh, mitigation of emissions and other things like that. But even that is kind of complicated, um, and isn't working maybe the way you'd want it to. Anyways, uh, the way all of this actually plays out is full of lots of tensions and, difficult negotiations 
you know, like, like I said, uh, what you think would be a really straightforward uh, answer and collaboration towards an existential threat is actually really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the things that we can talk about here and may, to maybe demonstrate like the difficulties in some of this um, is uh, one of the big wins, but maybe not big enough wins at COP27, uh, which was the establishment of a loss and damage fund. Um, Dean, we can talk about the specific the specifics of the loss and damages fund for this year, but I don't know. Do you want to lay out what that is and what's going on? Yeah, with it? it is philosophically a great idea. In practice, a much more complicated idea. And it's also something that faith groups have been pushing for and the Pope has explicitly named in Laudate Deum. He names it as something that he really wanted to see come out of COP28. And spoiler, in a certain way, it did come out of COP28 already. But um, like we'll say in a minute, there's a lot of complicated stuff. Um, the, the philosophical piece of it is to say that this should be basically a, a fund that compensates uh poorer countries or underdeveloped countries or however you want to put it for the kinds of uh, loss, revenue loss that they suffer from climate change and also um, damage inevitably that they will suffer from climate change. And as we know, countries in the global south are both more likely to experience the effects of climate change in greater and greater degrees and also less likely to have the resources to both kind of like future proof their uh, societies and like rebuild and you know you can think of like example after example um something that came to mind for me was because i was just in cuba you know cuba has been hit by a couple big hurricanes in the last um several years and they are still rebuilding and they can't really do what they want i mean in part because of the blockade but also because they just don't have the, the resources to uh to rebuild Right. And even in less politically charged countries all over the global south, whenever there's a huge disaster, you'll get things like humanitarian aid. You'll usually get, you know, lots of kind of international funding come in. But that's not the same thing as being like we want to establish a, a pool that is explicitly used to both kind of mitigate and even pay some reparations for uh, the the reality that global south countries are going to to face these challenges more than global north countries. So, like I said, philosophically, it's a great idea. The maybe immediate questions that you might find yourself asking are, who would operate such a fund? Who would manage that fund? You might think, who's going to donate to that fund? Who has access to those funds? What are the conditions for getting them? All these kinds of things. And that's where the real sort of challenges come into play. So I think it's kind of like, um, it's one of these really classic, <laughs> like, half victories maybe that NGOs often get, which is like, on the one hand, you you want something to be able to get money and, you know, uh, answer these important philosophical questions or kind of like uh, realize a good idea. But on the other hand, like the fact is international capitalism is just always going to subvert um, exactly what you need and people are going to try to get theirs on top of you know, the the purely common good version of all these kinds of ideas. So we'll talk about the specifics, but that's kind of the general thing. Maybe the most important piece is that it is something that a lot of people have been pushing for, including like radical movements all over the world have been pushing for a loss and damage fund, um, just maybe not in the way that uh, <laughs> a cop is capable of delivering. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, all of the media that's reporting the particular victory around the loss and damage fund at COP28 has been like, ah, 
they did it. <laughs> it's been yeah. like really celebratory and that's fine. I mean, it's true. It's great that it happened and it would not have happened for sure without significant pressure from, I think the environmental movement, but also the loss and damage fund that we have is not the loss and damage fund mm-hmm. that we need. So it's kind of frustrating. Um, yeah. It, so anyways, I think what you said was really helpful though, Dean kind of laying it out exactly like what it does philosophically or like the function that it's actually supposed to serve. The example about Cuba is a really good one. Um, in the, uh, in the cop 27 literature around the loss and damage fund, the example that I think I kept seeing was that, uh, G 20 countries. So countries like us, UK, EU, all of, all of those great ones, they make up like 75% of global greenhouse mm-hmm. emissions. Um, whereas, uh, a country like Pakistan, which if you remember last year, um, during this, like the cop time, they were undergoing considerable uh, floods. Um, countries like Pakistan, though, with flooding and other types of like awful catastrophes, you know, they were racking up billions and billions mm-hmm. in damages from all kinds of flooding. Um, but you know, they emit like less than one percent of the glo- of global emissions, right? So it's it's exactly that dynamic that you were mentioning, though. That's just like um, the countries who are responsible for like the awful carbon emissions um, who are making the world actively worse. Um, and causing countries like Pakistan or Cuba to suffer are the people who need to be paying into this uh, this fund. But as we'll see in a moment, that's not exactly how it works out. Well, it does, mm-hmm. but it doesn't in some ways. So um, the fund was set up primarily at COP27. Like that's where the like the idea was like sort of fleshed out there and it was passed then. So there was like the the framework was there, but some of like the rules around the fund hadn't been fully determined at COP27. But on day one of COP28, the resolution for the loss and damages fund was brought up to a vote and passed, um, securing millions of dollars for countries dealing with uh, climate change fueled uh, catastrophes that are, you know, there because of countries like the United States and the UK and the European Union and all these other all these other countries that we live in that are bad. Um, so after it was passed, really interesting, uh, a really interesting thing happened that I think I think is worth talking about. Uh, so, uh, cop 28, sorry, we've, I've been talking all about like what it is and how it works and all this, all these things about the UN or whatever, but it's in the UAE this year that kind of moves around to country to country. Um, so it's in the UAE and that's interesting. Um, so right after the, uh, loss and damages fund was passed, the UAE immediately threw in a hundred million dollars as did Germany, um, a hundred million dollars into the fund. That's great. <laughs> Why not? Uh, the United States, however, only promised 17 million with the provision uh, that they would get congressional approval for that money. <laughs> They'll definitely get it. Yeah, for sure. Right. <laughs> um, you know, one hundred million dollars is not nothing. Absolutely. It's not enough for the loss and damages fund. But 17 million is so <laughs> pathetically small when, you know, we are spending trillions of dollars on the mil- whatever. I, you, I don't need to tell the people on this podcast how dumb that is. <laughs> you already know. <laughs> Turn this podcast off. You know how stupid it is. It's fine. Um, but the other part of the, the the other part of the puzzle here for the United States was that not only was it sort of pending congressional approval, but also the U.S. delegation needed everyone to know that that paying this money into the fund is in no way a recognition of reparations for their emissions. So uh, not only is there like uh, no way that Congress is going to approve this, but the United States also wants everyone to know that it's not their fault. So mm-hmm. don't blame us. <laughs> it's just so funny. Uh, the United States at every turn has to find out how to be the absolute worst, <laughs> <laughs> just awful moral actors. 
um, stupid exceptionalism and uh, just dumb excuses. Yeah, you know, the uh, um, the way that Pope Francis talks about it in La Data Deum, I think, is already even kind of anticipating some of this stuff. Um, so, like I said, Pope Francis had called for uh, a development of the loss and damage fund in that document and, you know, praises it as a great idea and so on. But he said that uh, basically we don't know exactly how that's going to shake out. And here's how he writes about it. You know, this is like in October, kind of with an eye toward COP happening. Uh, He said it could be that at least uh, the conference in Egypt last year marked a step forward in consolidating a system for financing loss and damage in countries most affected by climate disasters. This would seem to give a new voice and a greater role to developing countries. Yet here, too, many points remained imprecise, above all, the concrete responsibility of the countries that have to contribute. Today, we can continue to state that the accords have been poorly implemented due to lack of suitable mechanisms of oversight, periodic review, and penalties in cases of noncompliance. The principles which they proclaimed still await an efficient and flexible means of practical implementation. Also, that international negotiations cannot make significant progress due to positions taken by countries which place their national interests above the global common good. And here's the typical, maybe Pope Francis prophetic line. Those who will have to suffer the consequences of what we are trying to hide will not forget this failure of conscience and responsibility. And I think that's the big key here, right? That like, there is a rush, I think, for people to celebrate the loss and damage fund. And I kind of get it on the one hand, because I think that's the strategy for trying to encourage countries to like, you know, I don't know, participate and buy into it. Like, I think people sort of use that strategy. It was the same with the Paris Agreement. Like, for all its faults, people were trying to boost it as this really important landmark decision because at least something came out of it. And the more we kind of emphasize how good it is, like, the more we can maybe expect a good faith response from government. But the challenge is, uh, you know, <laughs> people kind of rush to praise these things. But uh, as Pope Francis says, the the people who are most affected by their failures are, you know, not going to be comforted by that kind of celebration. And I think when you get to something like a loss and damage fund, all those extra questions, uh, who funds it, how do they fund it, who gets to, you know, access those funds, all these kinds of things. Those are the questions that are really difficult to answer within global capitalism and within the kind of like current global jockeying for power that you're getting, you know, between the United States and Russia and China and the other BRICS countries and things like that. And I think it's important to like, on the one hand, praise as Pope Francis does, the fact that there is something kind of emerging, like it's great that these conferences of parties are like trying to figure out some negotiated solutions. And maybe that is something to celebrate because it's hard to do that in and of itself. But on the other hand, like the prophetic stance, I think, calls for looking at where are all the gaps that are going to emerge from that. And, you know, how do we uh, how do we say to the conference of parties that like that's still not enough and and we want more? I think that's a, an important prophetic challenge. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, pr- praising it as a win, it does. I mean, it feels hollow and it also I think does a disservice to the movement um, by which I mean people who are fired up and ready to protest <laughs> or whatever and organize around uh, like climate change because uh, I don't you know people will see the, head- the headlines they probably won't read the whole stories I mean no no shame to people who do that because it's just we're all just trying to live our lives <laughs> in the world and like we can't be expected to be like doing the homework constantly 
But, you know, it's frustrating because you'll see like some very positive headlines about the loss and damage fund. And you might think, well, OK, that's that's solved or whatever. <laughs> that piece of the puzzle is done when it's not or still quite complicated. Um, more is required. And uh, yeah, well, anyways, a good a good note from Pope Francis. <laughs> um, Dean, you've mentioned a few times that it's like hard to know exactly like, you know, how all this functions. And I think that is true. It is hard to know. Maybe it's hard for us to know because we're not like policy wonks <laughs> about the UN or whatever. I'm sure that there are people who do know the answer to these questions. Um, but just doing a little bit of research uh, in a Times article, it mentions that uh, none other than the World Bank will be hosting the loss and damage fund for the next four years. So I got to say, that's not something that makes me very optimistic about it. Um, of uh, When it comes to international um, organizations, the World Bank is pretty close to the bottom of those mm-hmm. who I would trust, mm-hmm. but okay. <laughs> um so anyways they're they're holding the money but it'll come up to like an actual like uh committee or whatever put together by cop to like actually like oversee the distribution of funds and the contribution of funds and that kind of thing yeah the other wrinkle to the loss and damage fund is that it is not like um it's not it does not follow the specific philosophy we mentioned earlier where it's uh the wealthier um, higher carbon emitting, contributing the most money and countries with less emissions <laughs> who are mo- most effective getting the money. It's like uh, any anyone can donate money uh, to the, or anyone can contribute money and anyone can receive money. So be on the lookout <laughs> <laughs> the next time something happens in the United States and, uh, and fake president Joe Biden is trying to get money for, you know, whatever <laughs> happened in Florida or whatever. I don't know. Um, Stop spending money on military aid and start spending money on like climate resiliency. God, Joe Biden, be a real president like Sean Fain. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. And I think too, you know, the the fact that it is going to be run by the World Bank is really important because it suggests that like, you know, the the international order that has basically gotten us to a situation of climate change and like brutally crushing international debt and all that kind of stuff. It That order is still the one that's being trusted to solve the situation. And I think that yeah. is already <laughs> cause for concern. And, you know, like other kind of, I guess if you're a person on the left and you think about international stuff, you're inevitably going to have to think about the United Nations. I think for better and for worse, the United Nations does a lot of important work. Um, It also fails to do a lot of important work. Um, But you're also going to, you know, look to some other sources for determining your politics and, and maybe your read on the situation. And for example, like one of those good sources is La Via Campesina, which is the biggest movement in the world connecting peasant movements, social movements all across the global South and also even here in Canada, there are members of the La Via Campesina. And I think it's interesting to kind of follow what those groups are saying about the loss and damage fund. For example, La Via Campesina actually boycotted COP28 altogether, partly in solidarity with Palestine, um, because they were saying, essentially, uh, the, the headline, I guess, is that uh, you can't talk about climate change and also support things like genocide and dropping, you know, thousands and thousands of bombs on Gaza like that is incongruous. Um, but also they were saying we couldn't support a, uh, a loss and damage fund managed by the World Bank, um, which just sort of shows that it's not really a kind of serious reckoning with how things are, are going uh, in, in the global economy. So I think it's like it's important to maybe figure out uh, when you get to those international conversations, like whose voices really matter, because if you're a journalist covering COP, 
the voices that really matter generally are like spokespeople for governments, right? They're, uh, they are the policy wonks of the world. That's the idea. And you kind of transcribe what they say. You say what the World Bank head has to say, all these kinds of things. Um, but there are other people who have a moral authority in these conversations too, right? People who work with peasants all the time. Um, Pope Francis, somebody who is uh, helping to to guide an international spiritual community. You know, these are other voices that are trying to maybe deepen our consciousness around things like a loss and damage fund, around things like uh, multilateral responses to climate change. And I guess... I guess what I'm trying to say here is like <laughs> being a, a weird like left news consumer or something like that and a Christian news consumer, like we don't have time to do all the homework or whatever. Um, but also one way of like saving some of that time is kind of knowing who to listen to. And it's unfortunate that at COP, you know, they're not listening to, uh, for instance, organized movements of peasants or even church leaders or whatever. They're still ultimately listening to oil executives, um, unfortunately, and you know, countries whose entire way of life depends on continuing to extract tons and tons of uh, uh, oil and gas from the planet. So all that to say, I don't know, there just needs to be some yeah. other points of reference for uh, how we think about these things. Yeah, that's a really helpful word. Um, find out who to listen to. Some good advice. <laughs> um, one one other point about the loss and damage fund before we move on to larger criticisms about COP, maybe more in general, um, is that uh, the UN has previously said that it would uh, it would require three hundred eighty seven billion dollars to fund the loss and damage fund annually. So that's three hundred eighty seven billion every year from you know people like the United a States, a lot of money, <laughs> who who. who, who who are out here trying to nickel and dime their way out of it and like get Congress just to say no. <laughs> so anyways, uh, it's an expensive endeavor. Well, it's not really expensive. If you kind of think about it, it's pretty worthwhile. Um, and in comparison to a lot of things that countries like the United States do spend their money on, it's better. <laughs> I would, I would far rather, um, pay for, I don't know, Cuba or Pakistan or whoever to become more climate resilient than buy like 13 more, I don't know, giant <laughs> missiles to launch at somebody. Yeah. Anyways, um, uh, yeah, it's too expensive. Who, how are we going to pay for it? You know, <laughs> that's the question. <sighs> the United States does not want to answer it because uh, they're not going to pay for it. Yeah, so the loss and damage fund, it's, uh, I don't know, <laughs> maybe who can say how many steps forward and how many steps back, but it's a complicated process that is going to require a lot more agitation. But it's also not the only thing that has been frustrating people, I think, around the COP. And uh, I was, you know, gone when COP was really getting going and then going back to work. So Matt has just been like feeding me information by Discord about all the <laughs> big problems that have been kind of in the run up to this. And uh, it's been a wild, uh, a wild time already, as you can guess, having a COP in the UAE. So, Matt, I don't know uh, what else is going around uh, around the cop that's uh, getting people fired up. There's some scandal for sure. And we'll talk about that in a minute because it's an important <laughs> the scandal. No, I said I said that we'll talk about it in a minute. And I'm gonna st I'll stick to it um, before we get to the scandal. Uh, I think it is kind of worth noting, like the context that COP28 is happening within. And by context, I mean the context of like how hot it's been. <laughs> The temperature, not like a, not in terms of like the people in the room, but just like the actual temperature. Uh, and it kind of demonstrates, I think, maybe how like 
inadequate the process is to actually like rise to the occasion to deal with the severity of the problem. Um, for example, you know, like I said a few minutes ago, the whole point of the Paris Agreement is to not surpass a two degrees Celsius global average temperature. Um, that's that's a great goal. <laughs> I would love to, for that to happen. But uh, so far in 2023 is set to be the hottest year on record um, with November likely to be 1.7 to 1.8 degrees uh, Celsius above pre-industrial times. So we haven't surpassed the two degrees Celsius limit, but it's like (laughs) way too close. (laughs) It's way too close to have a bunch of ding dongs sitting in a room together arguing about like how much money they're going to pay into a fund that will like, you know, (laughs) pay for like a a levy or something so that someone's house is not flooded i guess it just it seems so frustrating because like the the problem is so glaringly um in your face but uh the solutions are meek and bad and you know extremely limited so that's frustrating i think um and you know I, i feel like it's very easy to look at that and be kind of a doomer about it and you know, fair <laughs> enough. You can deal with the anxiety of climate change however you want to. Um, but I think it's important to get on the table because it does uh, it does demonstrate the ways that like this is just there's so there's so many considerable limits to this particular approach to climate change. Um, and they I, I don't know, people need to start being real about it or else <laughs> this will continue to happen <laughs> or else we'll have a we'll have a cop 29 and, it'll, you know, we'll have blown past the Paris Agreement. Um uh, you know, guidelines and and goals. So whatever. Uh, cop 30 will be even hotter than this one. This is the coldest cop on <laughs> uh, in history. And uh, it's only going to get worse from here. So the, the contradictions, I think, of the whole situation, I think, are, are just like really stark. Um, so not only is it just like really hot, <laughs> too warm uh, globally, like there are all kinds of other very stupid contradictions that are just like not only are they bad optics, but they just kind of demonstrate the way that people are not taking this seriously. Like delegations have flown to the UAE from all over the world um, on private jets. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find that information out pretty easily. Um, it's just, it's just frustrating because I mean, whatever uh, air travel is an unfortunate necessity still because there aren't, uh, there's not enough rail infrastructure and not enough other types of infrastructure for different types of transportation. Uh, but you don't have to be so, <laughs> so, so outrageously dumb to have a, fri- a private jet fly you to a climate climate conference. That seems like an unnecessary kind of like unforced error, but uh, that's fine. People are out there <laughs> doing it. Um, yeah, I mean, the other contradiction that people have noted a lot so far about COP28 is that the UAE is a country whose wealth is grounded very, <laughs> like very deeply within fossil fuels. Um, that's, uh, you know, I mean, the wealth of the UAE comes pretty exclusively from fossil fuel um, production. Uh, And also (laughs) the other part that is extremely frustrating and people are (laughs) mad about and rightly so is that the president of COP28 is Dr. Sultan Ahmad Al-Jaber, who is the founder of uh, Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) These conversations about climate change are being led by an oil executive. (laughs) And I think that is uh, as dark as it gets. I think that's it's dumb. Um, it's like there's a certain logic to it that they're you know they're trying to use to make it make sense that like uh, you know Abu Dhabi National Oil Company is like trying to be a leader in renewables, but like come on, 
<laughs> we all know well enough what's happening here. It's just dumb. It's just dumb capitalist stuff being dumb capitalist stuff. That's, I think, maybe as yeah. far as it goes. I mean, the the optics are also undermined by the reality of what's been happening <laughs> leading up to it. Like, yeah, yeah I mean, the, totally. the optics are also undermined by the reality of what's happening on the ground as well. Right. Uh, before cop 28, you were telling me there's already some controversy happening. Uh, the guardian reported that the Abu Dhabi national oil company had the biggest net zero busting expansion plans of any company in the world. And the state run oil and gas fields in the UAE had been flaring gas almost daily, despite having committed 20 years ago to a policy of zero routine flaring. Uh, The Abu Dhabi national oil company questioned the figures behind the report, but did not provide its own figures. Leaked documents (laughs) obtained (laughs) by the center for climate reporting and seen by the Guardian are briefing documents prepared by the COP28 team before bilateral meetings between Al Jaber and 27 governments as part of the diplomatic preparations for the climate summit, as well as setting out issues relating to the climate negotiations. The briefing include uh, talking points and asks from the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company and from Mazdar, the UAE renewable energy company, which Algebra chairs. So a pretty wild conflict of interest here. I guess the the short of it is um, there's an oil executive running COP28, and also that oil executive is trying to have all kinds of meetings with political leaders and trying to, you know, position oil um, at this COP28 meeting. And I don't know, it doesn't get more kind of like bleak than that, like trying to sort of use COP as a, a cover for making backroom oil deals and all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, like you said, Matt, it's maybe easy to be a doomer about it. And like, I wouldn't fault anyone for being that way, because the fact is capitalism does undermine all our best efforts, all our good ideas. And as long as there's money to be made in things like fossil fuels, like that is just going to outstrip uh, the other kinds of negotiated processes. I think that's maybe a cynical reading, but it's also the kind of thing that, you know, keeps getting proven over and over at these COP20, <laughs> COP28 meetings. Uh, <laughs> 28 of them, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. 28 meetings, and every one of them has been undermined by, you know, countries and companies trying to make sure that they come out on top of whatever gets negotiated. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that COP28 has been at least a little bit of a sales pitch for <laughs> the Abu Dhabi oil company is uh, embarrassing, it all feels so embarrassing. I guess that's that's like my when I've been reading all about this and kind of just getting some of my ideas about COP28 together, I just feel embarrassed kind of at every turn that, you know, even even the good things like the loss and damages fund is just kind of embarrassing at the end of the day when the World Bank is kind of involved and, you know, all, all of the details about it just make it feel so like <laughs> grown, like grown yeah. worthy. <laughs> just like, what, what yeah, I mean, <laughs> One other weird thing about the World Bank thing, I don't know, my brain is kind of all over the place, but there's just like so many contradictions that I forget some of them, you know, like uh, the other weird thing about the World Bank is uh, there's even questions about whether or not the loss and damage fund is going to result in loans or grants, you know, and like, it's just like wild to be Mm -hmm. like the kind of fund set up at an oil executive run climate meeting is also potentially like kind of a new debt trap for poor countries as well, adjusting to climate change. And let's face it, right. like that is what the World Bank does. <laughs> it is what it has done for decades. And like, maybe it could be different, but I would be pretty shocked if the World Bank suddenly had a complete change of heart about like how it makes money and how it represents its members and so on. So 
I don't know. I just think uh, maybe like oil and big capital should probably not be the ones like organizing meetings for the entire planet to decide how to deal with climate change. But that's kind of all we have for now, I guess. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, eye rollingly stupid. I hate it. You got some some great American exceptionalism in there. You know, the United States trying to sort of dodge their their role with uh, the loss and damage fund. You got profiteering and sales pitches at a climate summit. Just like it's just too much. It feels it's like it's like an, a, a TV show that I'm like very sad to be watching. Um, no uplifting storylines whatsoever. <laughs> I think that the severity of climate change kind of comes in waves for regular people. Um, and like maybe like, mm-hmm. you know, this past summer, uh, climate change was sort of in your face because it was extremely hot outside and everyone just kind of knew it. Right. Uh, not only was it hot, but um, there were forest fires and smoke blowing through major cities in Canada and in the United States. And it was just kind of like, you know, on people's mind in the summer. Um, and now that it's a bit cooler out and uh, the media narratives have focused and switched and changed, you, you know, you don't think about it as much, I guess. Um, but uh, anyways, that's kind of why we wanted to talk about at least some of this, because it is all happening now still. Um, and these are all interconnected problems for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess it's just like it's hard to keep sight of all of this uh, because of the ways that our attention is particularly like refractive through media. And we just kind of like lose sight of a lot of how stupid it is and how inadequate it all is. But it's all coming for us, I guess, one way or the other. And it's like very easy to slip into a type of just like, I don't know, decline or like, you know, whatever. These guys at COP are like the only the only like hope and they're very bad and dumb. So like, what are we going to actually do? Um, and that's a great question. Um, and given how dire it all is and how hopeless it seems, it's, I think, helpful to actually have some strong moral voices making an appeal for changing the pace of how things like COP uh, go and how we think about them for sure. Um, one voice at COP this year is Pope Francis. Uh, he wasn't actually there in person because he is, I guess, sick or something. Um, the Pope has been at previous COPs. Uh, he was at the last one for sure, right? Well, he's never been there in person. Oh, is that right? He's never been there in person. Okay. Always just phoning it in. Yeah. In fact, that that was the... Uh, it was supposed to be a very kind of monumental occasion for Pope Francis to go to COP28 uh, in person. It was an unprecedented event. You're right that he, he'll he give addresses. Um, famously, he gave a pretty powerful address uh, in Glasgow uh, just a That's couple right. years ago um, before he got there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he had intended to go and he was also going to inaugurate. There's like a faith pavilion at the COP of kind of faith groups that are finding a, a moral voice at COP. Um, and you know, that is interesting and so on. And so it is unfortunate that he, he couldn't be there. Um, he is sick with an illness and I guess his doctors determined he's like fine to do other papal stuff. Like he's been busy doing things at the Vatican, but not to go all the way to the UAE. So he did release the statement that he was going to, to read anyway, which has been pretty helpful and interesting, I think. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that we don't have, you know, the kind of, symbol that we would have had at least of the Pope being there and calling on these, uh, these world leaders to do something. Yeah, totally. I guess I had not realized he'd he'd never been there, man. Well, I would, I prefer the Pope to write addresses rather than fly in a private jet to to cop. So I guess that's probably fine. (laughs) Um, but he's done, he's given addresses in the past, um, for sure. I mean, I've, I've read them, so I know, I know that he's at least talked about it. 
Um, <laughs> but anyways, this year, the address that he gave, I think, was pretty is pretty good. I think it has a lot of the desperation and grumpiness that you hear in the previous apostolic exhortation, Laudate Deum, that we talked about a few weeks ago. But there's also a lot of like pretty hopeful notes, I think, that you'll kind of hear echoed, you know, echoes of past encyclicals and stuff as well. Um, Dean, do you want to talk us through the Pope and what he thinks about all of this? Yeah. Uh, well, like we said on the previous episode, Laudato Deum is definitely a tonal shift from Laudato Si. Um, Laudato Si is longer, but it also is, you know, more detailed, has maybe also some more room for, I guess, uh, some hopeful voices and so on. Laudato Deum is a very impatient document. It is chastising the international community for moving too slowly and really failing to achieve what it said it would achieve. And it has some kind of cautious, like, moments of, I wouldn't even call it hope necessarily, but kind of like affirmation of possibility. <laughs> like um, maybe something could happen here with the loss and damage fund or other kinds of things, but it's definitely a more like, I don't know, um, lower tone kind of uh, document. Um, the address, I think, uh, continues in that spirit. And what I appreciate especially about it is that Pope Francis does name the fundamental contradictions at these kinds of um, meetings. So he says, for example, it has now become clear that the climate change presently taking place stems from the overheating of the planet caused chiefly by the increase of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere due to human activity, which in recent decades has proved unsustainable for the ecosystem. The drive to produce and possess has become an obsession resulting in an inordinate greed that has made the environment the object of unbridled exploitation. The climate run amok is crying out to us to halt this illusion of omnipotence. Let us once more recognize our limits with humility and courage as the sole path to a life of authentic fulfillment. He goes on to say, what stands in the way of this, of, uh, you know, trying to really figure this stuff out? He says, the divisions that presently exist among us, yet a world completely connected like ours should not be unconnected by those who govern it with international negotiations that cannot make significant progress due to positions taken by countries which place their national interests above the global common good, as we saw before. We find ourselves facing firm and even inflexible positions calculated to protect income and business interests, at times justifying this on the basis of what was done in the past and periodically shifting the responsibility to others. Yet the task to which we are called today is not about yesterday, but about tomorrow. A tomorrow that, whether we like it or not, will belong to everyone or else to no one. Um, there's a lot more to say, but I'll just pause there because I think it's good that Pope Francis is really putting his finger on the, the fundamental contradiction, which is the, the protection of national and economic interests above the common good. You know, we talked on the show a while back about the IPCC reports and the discrepancies between what scientists said and what survived in the political edits of that document. And, you know, over and over, you see these examples of like scientists saying um, we should probably be eating less meat uh, or less uh, beef in particular. And you have the government of Brazil under Bolsonaro saying uh, we've got to excise that because they're a huge, you know, meat exporting country. Um, you get similar stuff in edits from uh, Global North countries, especially about who's responsible for climate change and so on. And I think it's helpful that Pope Francis was at least willing to, like, say all this to the faces of the people at COP uh, and to call that out. I don't you know, I think there's limitations to that. My guess is, uh, you know, 
if you go to COP28 with instructions from your government to protect your business interests, like the Pope telling you not to do that, it's probably not going to like change your course of action. Uh, but I do hope that, you know, it creates maybe some more space for conversation and kind of pushes social movements as well to activate and kind of understand those are the contradictions at play. It sort of it does away with that kind of like liberal media story that just says uh, the loss and damage fund is fundamentally just a victory. You know, like there's more going on there and we have to kind of pay attention to where those contradictions are um you know, subverting what we really need to get out of these kinds of meetings. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I was reading through this and kind of thinking about the absurdity of somebody like the Pope even saying this to people at COP, you know, people who like fundamentally don't care or understand this anyways. And it just makes me think that maybe it's not really for them in the first place. Um, there's a phrase yeah. that uh, he, that the Pope Francis uses uh, elsewhere. <laughs> Um, about the a multilateralism from below, like you know what what you do when the people in charge obviously aren't going to get it done for you or whatever, and it does feel like uh, this is written for a different audience, maybe not not the people at COP or maybe not not all the people at COP mm-hmm. for sure, um, but it is maybe a, a nod towards uh, the people who might be listening elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really Pope Francis's function here, too, is to as best as he can try to amplify the um, the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, as he puts it in Laudato Si, you know, to sort of become a, a voice that's channeling that into a cop meeting and just making sure that it's at least present and, and kind of heard, even if it's ignored. Um, and I do think that there's something to that, you know, and the fact is prophets are often ignored. That's kind of like part of the vocation, I guess, unfortunately, but I think it matters that Pope Francis is willing to do that. Um, I'll read maybe one more paragraph where I think he does a good job of this. He says, particularly striking in this regard are the attempts made to shift the blame onto the poor and high birth rates. These are falsities that must be firmly dispelled. It is not the fault of the poor, since the almost half of our world that is more needy is responsible for scarcely 10% of toxic emissions, while the gap between the opulent few and the masses of the poor has never been so abysmal. The poor are the real victims of what is happening. We need think only of the plight of indigenous peoples, deforestation, the tragedies of hunger, water, and food insecurity, and forced migration. Births are not a problem, but a resource. They are not opposed to life before life, whereas certain ideological and utilitarian models now being opposed with a velvet glove on families and peoples constitute real forms of colonization. The development of many countries already burdened by grave economic debt should not be penalized, Instead, we should consider the footprint of a few nations responsible for a deeply troubling ecological debt toward many others. It would only be fair to find suitable means of remitting the financial debts that burden different peoples, not least in light of the ecological debt that they're owed. Uh, Important paragraph, you know, Pope Francis coming from the Malthusians. I think that's important. Um, (laughs) Something that we also say in this podcast, despite some people on Reddit assuming that we don't, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Important to say we're not Malthusians as well. But uh, Pope Francis acting the also asking the the hard questions, you know, who's really responsible for this, um, who also kind of should be bearing the responsibility, the burden of sorting it out. And again, like you said, Matt, probably the the folks at COP aren't even necessarily the right audience for it. Um, But I think it's important to name those things in a space like that to make sure that, you know, nobody can say that at least they didn't know or nobody told them or whatever. Uh, There's there's a kind of 
removal of the excuse of naivete here, even though everybody kind of knows yeah, what's really right. going on. I appreciate this whole this whole paragraph about birth rates and and really really uh, telling people <laughs> telling people what's up. I think it's good. Finally, firing back against uh, Donna Haraway after she uh, said some dumb stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. if folks don't know the inside baseball here. Um, in in the apostolic exhortation, Ladonna Deum, the the one that we were just kind of talking about, um, it came out very recently. We had an episode about it. You can go back and look. Uh, Pope Francis cites a pretty important continental philosopher named Donna Haraway, who is famous for um, writing a lot about um, animals and sort of uh, connections between humans and animals and kind of the complications that come with it. Um, I think all in all, a very compelling thinker and someone I kind of like. Um, but uh, after, <laughs> so he, he, Pope Francis cited her uh, in his, in Laudato Deum. And then as a response, like somebody asked her about it and she was like, well, the Pope didn't even mention about, you know, uh, rising birth rates and how big of a problem that is, which is really <laughs> jacked up for Donna Haraway to say, I think like maybe she's just like mad. The Pope is like citing her and she doesn't like that for her street cred or something, or maybe she is an actual Malthusian now. And I think that would be bad. She, she that is. Does, and I think that's, I hate that. Uh, I hate that for all of us. Anyways, uh, thank you, Pope Francis, for setting her straight on this one, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Just uh, just frustrating, <laughs> but great to see. Yeah. Uh, maybe two more things to pull out here before we kind of close out the episode. One is um, the spirituality that's present here. I think, I don't know. I don't know about you, Matt. For me, it's easier to get my head around the politics and economics of most things than around the theology or spirituality behind it. Um, or kind of the ways that theology and spirituality can kind of contribute to these things, maybe because I, I don't know, often resist uh, those solutions. But I think Pope Francis actually does a good job rooting it in a, a spirituality that doesn't feel tacked on, but is pretty substantial. And that's uh, Franciscan spirituality. You know, he took the name Francis after Francis of Assisi. He uh, drew on Francis's vision in Laudato Si, and he released Laudato Deum on October 4th, which is, uh, Francis's uh, feast day, and he closes this um, address also talking about Francis, and I'll read this out because I think it's actually pretty inspiring. He says, I like to think that a good omen can be found in an event that took place in 1224. In that year, Francis of Assisi composed his Canticle of the Creatures. By then, Francis was completely blind, and after a night of physical suffering, his spirits were elevated by a mystical experience. He then turned to praise the Most High for all those creatures that he could no longer see, but knew that they were his brothers and sisters, since they came forth from the same father and were shared with other men and women. An inspired sense of fraternity thus led him to turn his pain into praise and his weariness into renewed commitment. Shortly thereafter, Francis added a stanza in which he praised God for those who forgive. He did this in order to settle, successfully, an unbecoming conflict between the civil authorities and the local bishop. I, too, who bear the name Francis with the heartfelt urgency of a prayer, want to leave you with this message. Let us leave behind our divisions and unite our forces, and with God's help, let us emerge from the dark night of wars and environmental devastation in order to turn our common future into the dawn of a new and radiant day. And I think, actually, it, it hits pretty well at the end. Uh, that sort of idea that the ecological vision of St. Francis is also tied to the peacemaking vision of Francis is significant. 
I think too, Pope Francis kind of seeing himself as carrying that, uh, that vision and those connections forward into this current moment does feel like pretty, I don't know, pretty significant. It feels like Pope Francis or Jorge Bergoglio at the time had the, the right intuition that Francis is the, the saint for our particular moment. And it's almost like kind of like eerie or spooky how pressing it that choice has been. Um, you know, Pope Francis has been Pope during uh, pretty brutal climate change uh, transitions in the last decade, um, also during a pandemic, which was exacerbated by uh, ecological issues. Also, as uh, wars have been increasing around the world, all these tensions are kind of arising. You know, he he's sort of following in the path of a particular Catholic tradition that I think is calling for us to see all those things as connected and to find our own place in like a more equitable relationship with uh, creation. And I don't know, I feel like it does kind of root all the other stuff in a spirituality that also maybe kind of like encourages a, a form of faith or hope that doesn't feel too uh, too cheesy or removed from the, the gravity of the situation. Yeah, I agree. I think it's pretty good. Um, St. Francis, you know, when, at every turn in this guy's life, he's always having a mystical, a mystical experience of one kind or another. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's great for him. Um, I I don't know if I've ever had a mystical experience. Probably not. I don't I wouldn't say that I have, but um, I'm I'm really, uh, I think, grateful for uh, how it's being parsed out here, though. The the connection that we share to to nature is like, you know, can't be ignored. You need to know it. You need to kind of like start feeling that in your bones in a real way. Um, and uh, I think that that's like the type of spiritual advice I can really get behind is that uh, our our fate is extremely connected to all of our brother and sister animals around us. Um, and there's a, a certain power in that. I guess the the thing that I, I kind of come to at the end, though, is that, like, we have to leave behind our divisions and unite our forces is, like, you know, I feel like you could read that at, at a place like COP where it's, like, you got to stop arguing with people about whatever this thing is and leave behind the divisions of, like, <laughs> capital and the marketplace. But I think the other piece is that, like, you have to leave behind the divisions of, like, um, thinking about humanity as, like, the supreme... Um, you know, judge of all things mm-hmm. as well. Um, so anyways, all that to say the, the St. Francis stuff, it's important, probably the most important thing for like orienting your spirituality when it comes to uh, <laughs> climate change and catastrophe. Yeah, I think so too. It's actually, this year is the 800th year celebrating the, the, one of the rules of St. Francis. It's been like a big thing in the Franciscan community. So it's a real Francis moment, I guess. Um, the Francis vibrations are high, <laughs> as the New Age people would say. I'm watching a lot of cult documentaries, so it's slowly sifting into my vocabulary in a, a dangerous way. Um, I'm definitely vibrating at that frequency right now, so that's great. <laughs> uh, all right, I said there were two things. Uh, the other last thing is something you already mentioned, Matt, which is that piece about multilateralism from below. And I guess I feel like it's hard for me to get excited about COP and about the UN in general, it is mostly a huge bummer. To me, it just feels like a bunch of people getting together and whining and dining and not doing anything else. And just, uh, I don't know, more wheeling and dealing than anything. Um, and that sucks. But I think what is helpful about Pope Francis in Laudate Deum is that he doesn't kind of hang all his hopes on the possibility of like international power brokers figuring it out. Um, instead, he has this other path forward. And we've talked on this show in the past about how Pope Francis is really leaning into social movements, that he has like a real theory of popular power that is 
I think pretty like underappreciated actually in a lot of circles. And it comes out in La Data Deum in a helpful way. He says, in the medium term, globalization favors spontaneous cultural interchanges, greater mutual knowledge and processes of integration of peoples, which end up provoking a multilateralism from below and not simply one determined by the elites of power. The demands that rise up from below throughout the world, where activists from very different countries help and support one another, can end up pressuring the sources of power. It is to be hoped that this will happen with respect to the climate crisis. For this reason, I reiterate that unless citizens control political power, national, regional, and municipal, it will not be possible to control damage to the environment. Uh, two things I really love about this. The first is uh, Pope Francis's call for people's yeah. government at the end. Uh, love that. Love to see it. <laughs> More of that for sure. Um, we really got to find a way to get all these Catholic social teaching folks on board with this. <laughs> Pretty important stuff. Um, but the other bit is uh, that affirmation of international solidarity, that there are kind of networks, uh, multilateralism from below of uh, activists in different countries supporting each other in the struggle um, against, uh, you know, the, the mal effects of climate change. And I think that is kind of the, the, the most hopeful part of Pope Francis's interaction with COP and with climate change more broadly is that it's not just power brokers figuring stuff out. It's also like people outside those structures, um, you know, going into the streets and going on strike and demonstrating against, uh, new huge mining companies in places like Guatemala, right? Like, it's a, a significant kind of thing that there is this uh, this networked form of resistance and solidarity. And I think that's the at least the thing that allows me to, like, stave off the doomerism that inevitably comes out of things like COP is that at the end of the day, whatever they decide there, um, you still have to the next day find out what everybody else is saying. You know, you got to ask the La Via Campesina what's going on in the peasant movement and you can kind of figure it out. From that's there. right. Um the multilateralism from below, it's great. It's great messaging. It's great political idea. I like it a lot. But you got to put together with the Franciscan stuff, though, too. Uh, the from below, it's not just people. It's also <laughs> it's also it's also the planet. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, uh, we need a we need a government of possums or whatever. I think it's probably great. A great place to start. <laughs> Dogs for president. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I think that's true. I mean, that's the the good Donna Haraway moment, right? Is that um, uh, Malthusianism aside, she's right that we have this kind of companion species relationship to uh, uh, to other creatures, and it's important to involve them in in that multilateralism. We got to build the the peoples and pets government, and also all the wild <laughs> animals too. They can get in there. Um, <laughs> incredibly, incredibly weird United Nations, but I think that's yeah. probably the one that we need. The peoples and pets government and all the wild animals too is very funny. <laughs> That's the new Pledge of Allegiance. We're replacing it. <laughs> that's right. This can be a great new Redbubble sticker. We've been running dry on ideas, but uh, I feel like that's a, a good manifesto that we can really, you know, build a great logo for. If you're an artist out there, you can make uh, the flag for this uh, incredibly important. Yeah, that's government right. Initiative. Sean Fain. He's the president, but the vice president is like, a, I don't know, like a <laughs> raccoon. Uh, who could say? <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, whatever the enemy of Scabby the Rat would <laughs> <Yeah>. be. <laughs> the IWW yeah, exactly. cat or something. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you support us at $2 or more, you get an invite to our cool Discord channel where you get to hang out and post stuff within reason. Um, 
you get to <laughs> you get you to get do that. The, you get our permission to do that and i think that is what you need in your life <laughs> um our intro music is by amari armstrong our outro music is by the logical spoon and uh we'll see you next week Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have.